Well, good morning. I am sorry I was not able to be here last night. I had a, a commitment. I serve on the board uh, of the ministry of our chancellor, Dr. Chuck Swindoll, with Insight for Living. And it was our uh, fall uh, board meeting, and it went all day. And so I uh, wasn't able to get a flight until 8 o'clock, uh, about 8.50 last night. So uh, I got in here uh, late night and then uh, studied a bit and went to, so I slept this morning. Uh, sometime between, you know, midnight and uh, seven, but it's, uh, it is a privilege to be here and I'll listen to what I missed last night because that's one of the joys of being involved in a conference like this is the camaraderie that we as speakers enjoy uh, with one another and learning from each other and so I, uh, I have the highest uh, respect for uh, the, the chair of our systematic theology department, our Department of Theological Studies who's here with me. And uh, I couldn't be more pleased that uh, you are getting to hear him. And I think this is the first time I've been with Steve and I'm looking forward. I've read his, some of his stuff uh, in uh, the magazine and uh, have heard about him. And so looking forward to talking with him as well. I have two sons. One is a worship pastor. And uh, uh, we, Barbie and I, uh, live in Arlington. We go to church in Fort Worth and Dallas Theological Seminaries in downtown Dallas. So we're sort of a Metroplex family with regard to that. And as I was sitting here this morning, I was, uh, felt very much at home because I heard people talking about their uh, uh, hunting uh, and their plans and their guns and their, uh, you know, uh, the bows and arrows and things like that. I was on a plane last night and a little puddle jumper coming up from Dallas and a guy two seats in front of me was talking with the flight attendant. He was coming up to bow hunt. And uh, so it was all a conversation about that. I felt very much at home in Fort Worth. Uh, Dallas and Fort Worth are so different that you would never mention that you were interested in hunting in the pulpit in some churches in Dallas because that would be politically incorrect. And so it's a, it's a crazy, you know, metroplex, but it's a lot of fun. But Barbie and I started going to a church, Christ Chapel in Fort Worth, uh, and a uh, wonderful church. And then uh, they pursued my son, who is a graduate of the seminary, uh, to, uh, to be uh, their next worship uh, director. And they do full choir orchestra in a majestic service. Then they have contemporary services, and then they have a, a wild and contemporary service. Uh, they've got three levels of, uh, you know, appeal and attraction uh, to different people. But uh, so they started going to our church. And then my younger son is a football coach. Uh, at a Christian school, and he met his wife at a, at a church in Arlington. She was the children's director, and so they fell in love and uh, got married, and uh, he's a football coach uh, at a Christian school, and so they're in between houses, so they've lived with us now almost two years, and they have a two-year-old and a one-year-old. So uh, Barbie and I are young again, okay, uh, chasing little ones, but last night all five of them were uh, camped out at our house, and uh, because my oldest son and his wife were at a music conference in San Antonio, uh, my younger son uh, was uh, playing, and they uh, just completed their undefeated season in football. And uh, never in the history of the school have they had that. And so they're headed to the playoffs, and it's wonderful. And uh, I have access to what's called Huddle, which is the films of the, uh, the games on my iPad. So uh, today, uh, if I have any downtime, I can uh, watch 
a speeded up version with all of the plays numbered and uh, analyzed the football game. So we're having a, we're having a blast, but it is uh, it's it's a wonderful time. So I thank you for those of you who are talking about nine millimeters uh, conceal and carry and uh, uh, bow bow you know trajectory and uh, do you have a backstop and uh, how do you keep from killing your neighbor? Uh, I appreciate all of that kind of a conversation, and I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I, I was asked to address a topic, and it's it's a sort of a a thirty thousand foot topic. Uh, not a, a specific uh, aspect of the future. I'll do that this afternoon in a, uh, a presentation. But I was asked to address the issue of the, the, the practicality of, uh, of does prophecy make a difference in our lives ethically? What is the connection between eschatology and ethics? How should the future shape the present? Uh, just a little bit of a perspective factor. Each person blinks 25 times every minute. Each blink takes a fifth of a second. Uh, therefore, if you take a 10-hour trip by car and only average 40 miles an hour, uh, you will have driven 20 miles with your eyes closed. <laughs> you know, you, you mathematicians can figure it out. It's just sort of a frightening thought. But my fear is, as we study the scriptures, there's a tendency to start blinking a little bit when we hit the prophetic sections and we drive by 20 miles of great stuff at times. The challenges that have come into our culture in the last 50 years, in the 50s, there was a loss of innocence. In the 60s, there was a loss of authority. Some of us who grew up in the 60s understand that. With the Vietnam War and the riots in the streets, it was, uh, it was a terrible time in our country. In the 70s, with free love and uh, all of that, we, we really, really lost the perspective of what true love was all about. Uh, in, in the 80s, uh, there was a loss of hope. Uh, the, the economic times were bad. Uh, in Texas, everybody was losing their jobs. The oil fields were drying up, it seemed. There was a huge loss of hope in the 80s. That's when I moved to Dallas. And it was wild and crazy in Texas, especially during those days. Uh, in the 90s, there, was, there, there seemed to be a, a loss of an ability to really reason. It's like things just didn't make sense. Why, why would you do that? And, and sort of the, I don't know, it just felt good. Or, uh, you know, there's no rhyme or reason. And, and, and as that developed with postmodern thought, your truth is my truth, and you know, your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. And uh, Ravi Zacharias, the apologist, I, I love what he says, just tell somebody when they say that, just say, you're wrong. <laughs> you know, be, because if, 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 if he's saying his, he's right, and, you, and he thinks you have a right to be right, then you have a right to tell him he's wrong. You know, about noon, you'll, that'll catch up with you, and you'll have some fun with that. <laughs> But if I'm entitled to my truth, and my truth is my truth, then you are wrong, regardless of whether you think you're right or not, or I'm wrong, and then it, my truth isn't my truth. It's just, it, it, it sounds funny, and it, it, it's, it's the ultimate tolerance that's really intolerant of what is really real. And so uh, it's just a fun thing to do. It's like the atheist who says, I know there's no God. Are you sure there's no God? If you're sure you're no, there's no God, then you must know all things, and that would make you a God. Because what if there's a God I could tell you about that you don't know? Would you be interested? And most of the time, the answer is no, because it's not a question of atheism or a question of agnosticism. It's a question of I don't want to know. 
Uh, and so uh, there's no such thing as a real atheist in that sense. Uh, they, they, there can be an agnostic, but uh, a, a real atheist has to assume he knows there can't be a God, which would mean he has all knowledge, which I think that's a sign of deity. But that's another one that you can think about till noon, okay? In, in the 2000s, because of that, there became a loss of truth. So how does all of that relate? Well, one of the things that we've watched over the last 20 or 30 years, maybe you've seen it in the churches like we've seen it in the churches, is that there's also that, that, that a big blink of, okay, I just don't want to talk about prophecy. I just don't want to study prophecy. As uh, our pastor was just saying just a moment ago, our brother was saying a, a moment ago, uh, wh why, why don't people want to study this? And the fact that you're here and that you want to is a huge blessing to those of us because it would be pretty boring for me to show up because Mike wouldn't want to listen to me just by myself. He's never volunteered to do that. But why, why do some shy away from prophecy? Some because uh, they don't trust the Bible. They don't think the Bible can predict the future. And that's the liberal position that you can't trust the Bible. Uh, that, that's, that pervades our culture today. Uh, one of my other colleagues, Daryl Bach, is a, a New Testament scholar, and he has often said that uh, uh, a number of years ago, the question was, what does the Bible mean? Now, the, the, today, the question is the Bible. And, uh, and, and can it be trusted? Uh, another reason is some are uninterested. Uh, they're uninterested because they, they've been turned off by the weirdos, uh, the fanatics, the date setters. Uh, Dr. Walvert, who was uh, one of our previous presidents and the uh, second president of Dallas Seminary, he hired me and we uh, did conferences together. And he was here in Peoria a number of times uh, that some of you uh, who have been around a while may remember. But uh, Dr. Walvert had a, had a sort of a running uh, tug of war with this uh, fellow that kept claiming to know when the Lord was coming. And... Uh, uh, with uh, the radio program, and he kept, uh, he kept putting a date, and so uh, I didn't get to do it. I wanted to do it, but do Dr. Walver basically asked him years ago, would you have me on your radio program two weeks after the date you set? <laughs> I love that. I just love that. I, I got so busy because this last time when he did that, uh, I think he's done with it now, but I, 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 I wanted to call and say, will you give me the radio station? Okay, the day before you think the Lord is coming. You know, and I, I wanted to do that. I just, I just, I lost track of time and didn't do that. But, uh, but all of us have been turned off by the date setters. I mean, the Lord was going to come in 1981. Or he's going to, uh, the second coming was going to be in 1988 and then back that up seven years, it's 1981. Those things come and go and people just sit, get tired of that. I understand that. And it's a disgrace to the study of scripture to set those kind of dates. Unclear, too many views, too many events. It just, just seems like a fog, and that's one of the purposes of a conference like this is to help us, you know, blow away some of that fog as we uh, dust off our Bibles and uh, open those portions of Scripture. For some, it's because uh, they're too uncommitted. It, it takes time. When I first started teaching at Dallas Seminary, I was teaching post-exilic prophets in the Gospels in one course. That's a lot of material in one uh, three-hour course. And, and the assignment that I gave in the book of Zechariah was that if all of you had was the book of Zechariah, what would your prophetic timeline and event cluster look like? And I said, just assume you have no other book in the Bible, you're just going to put together the, the, the prophetic expectation in the book of Zechariah, one of the major, uh, you know, uh, messianic of the minor prophets. 
And so, uh, because there's enough in there, things that lead up to the coming of the Lord, things that flow from the coming of the Lord, events that accompany the coming of the Lord, the geographical changes that will happen when he lands on the Mount of Olives, et cetera, et cetera. And you can put together a schematic just from the book of Zechariah. It was a wonderful assignment for our students. It was a wonderful assignment for their prof. Uh, but uh, it takes work to do that. You've got to say, well, why would that happen before that? If, if, if he's going to live forever, but he's going to die, it just is sort of logical that his death will happen before eternity and that there's going to be a resurrection. So if he's going to die, but he's going to live forever, I, I've got those two events put down. If he's going to be rejected, but he's also going to reign forever, then rejection comes before reign. And you can start putting down the big events, and then what, what are the events that relate to his rejection? What are, the relates, what are the events that relate to his reign? And you can start ferreting that out. And it's a wonderful study. But some people are just too uncommitted to go after it, even in one book. I used to think uh, in days of overhead projectors, remember those? Do you have those anymore? I mean, I, those were, that was high tech when I started teaching. Uh, I bought my own overhead projector. It was like taking a computer around the country. It was an overhead projector I hauled around. But uh, uh, I, I thought about if, if I could put one overlay of one book and then do all the other 66 books or 65 books and keep doing that, and if I could actually look through that, I could have my prophetic schematic book by book by book by book because it will all fit. When I spoke at Dr. Walbert's funeral, I said he, he now has his prophecy chart absolutely perfect. And I said, I don't think he had to make too many changes. He was that good of a student. But the uncommitted, it takes time to sort out the details. Number five, uh, it's unrelated. And this is what I want to speak to this morning. Uh, too often prophecy is unrelated to real life. But I'm here to tell you that it's absolutely integral to every day I live, every single day I live, and let me tell you why. Number one, prophetic truth is the major portion, is a major portion of the inspired scriptures. Prophetic truth is a major portion of inspired scripture. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture, every scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. He goes on to say that the man of God, he's in a context of pastoral training in that, in that genre, uh, that the man of God might be equipped, thoroughly equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Passe, grafe, theopneustos. You can get shots at that for, for that at the hospital. Every passage of scripture is the result of the breath or spirit of God. One-fourth to one-third of this is prophetic. Between one-fourth and one-third of every scripture, not every passage, but of this whole corpus that he's talking about, if every scripture is the result of the Spirit of God, the inspiration of the, script, of the Spirit, then that one-fourth to one-third of the Bible is profitable for doctrine, obviously, of the second coming, reproof, that's what the prophets were about, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, correction, 
They thought the Lord would already come or they thought they had missed it and that's part of the purpose of First and Second Thessalonians. Instruction in righteousness. What does it look like to walk with God so that when you meet God, you're prepared to meet him and he'll be happy to see you. It's very practical. If I leave out prophecy, what have I missed about all of that that could have helped me today? Number two, well, what does that attack? All right, the irony of this is because it's God-breathed, it, it attacks the skeptic who, who doesn't understand what life is about. The, you know, uh, skeptics and cynics, uh, you know what, I, I don't suffer from that. You know, I, I can get upset at things and I can get discouraged at times, but I don't, I don't sit there as, as a skeptic and go, I'm not sure what this whole thing is about and I don't know what the world is about. I don't know where it's going to go. I don't have those questions because of a biblical orientation, a biblical worldview. You know, it, uh, the, the skepticism is, is where the mind uh, basically rules and if I can't figure it out, I don't think it can be figured out. Well, if God hadn't spoken, I'd be in that category. Uh, that's why those without the wisdom of God are called scoffers. Those who are without the wisdom of God in Proverbs are called naive. Those who absolutely just disregard the wisdom of God are called fools. You know, why, why stay in skepticism when God has spoken? Can I say that again? Why stay in skepticism and cynicism when, when God has spoken? I think it argues for a study of prophecy. Well, that relates to number two, and that is the whole of God's word is to be preached. Paul telling Timothy in 2 Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Now let me tie that to the previous one. If all of God's word is the result of the inspiration of the spirit of God, that the, the, the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God, it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, then when Paul tells Timothy to preach the word, he wasn't slicing and dicing miniature portions of it alone. He was expecting him to teach the whole counsel of God. I teach an executive Bible study of, uh, uh, of men uh, in the Dallas area, a couple of them in fact, and uh, we were in Thessalonians in one of those, and we were working our way through, and in chapter five, verse one of Thessalonians, now Paul had just been uh, rejected, you know, and I'm putting jail up at Philippi on the second missionary journey. He came down to Thessalonica, then Berea, ends up down in Corinth, and he turns around and writes back, you know, at Athens and then Corinth, and he turns around and writes back to the Thessalonians. He'd been there three weekends that we know, and we don't know how much longer than that, but you know what boggled my mind? This week as I taught the guys, 1 Thessalonians 5.1 says, I have no need to tell you about the times and the seasons because you know those. That's a phrase that's used in Daniel, it's used in Acts, and it's used there. Almost every other, in fact, the other two places where it's used is the, the plan and purposes of God for Israel. 
boggled my mind to think that in three or four weekends of an evangelistic campaign, church planting effort, in the month that Paul had been with Thessalonians, prophecy and the nature of what God was doing with the nation of Israel was part and parcel of that miniature Bible conference of a month long. And he said so much so, he didn't need to repeat what he taught them about the epics and the seasons in Israel's history. Now that says something to us about discipleship. So what does that do? Well, that protects against isolationism. And by that, I don't mean an isolated country. There's a technical term for that at a, at a national level. But I mean, it, it keeps us from being too selective in our Bible study. If preaching the whole of the truth is, is God's will, uh, we can't do that every Sunday, obviously, but over the course of ministry and over the course of your own Bible reading and reading the Bible in a year or reading the Bible in two years, to understand all of God's word as best we can is a part of the stewardship that God has given to us. You know, of all the libraries in the world, we've got a 66-volume one that fits on my iPad, in your phone. In chapel now, when people say, open your Bibles, they all say, open your Bibles flip in there, turn it on. You know, we've got all kinds of verbs now that are needed, you know, because of uh, the multiplicity of way we can study the scriptures. What, a, what an incredible blessed people we are. Why, why is the whole of God's word important? I was uh, doing a series of lectures at Princeton University. That sounds very erudite, but let me tell you, it was for a group of Christians, for a, a Christian ministry on the campus of Princeton, so don't get uh, too uh, impressed. But it was an incredible privilege. Princeton Evangelical Fellowship hosts what's called the Donald B. Fullerton Lectureship every year. And they invite uh, teachers to come in and lecture. And I was lecturing on hermeneutics, the science and art of interpreting the word of God. And I had done a lecture and a Princeton seminary student came up and he said to me, prof, he said, I'm, I'm having a hard time with Corinthians. And because I knew he was a student at Princeton and uh, he had been in the session, I decided to have some fun with him. And I said, you know what? I said, you know what? I really think your problem is with Jesus. And he looked at me like, no, no, prof, I don't have a problem with Jesus. I have a problem with 1 Corinthians. I have a problem with Paul. And I said, you know what, if, if you have a problem with Paul, you really do have a problem with Jesus. He goes, how do you figure? And I said, well, if I understand your question, you're asking how can an omnipotent God guide a human author to write scripture so that the product of that would be absolutely without error. That's my problem. I said, I thought it was. I said, now let me explain it in a different way. Your real issue is the same issue, is how can an omnipotent God, notice omnipotent God, can do anything he wants, how can an omnipotent God take a human instrument like Mary and produce a perfect Jesus? God in flesh. I have a bigger problem with that one than how, come, how can Paul write Corinthians and be accurate? How can God take Mary and use Mary through a virgin and produce the incarnate Christ? The answer is the same to both. It's the spirit of God. The omnipotent spirit of God is the revealer of the scriptures and the omnipotent spirit of God. How will this happen? I've never known a man. This will happen by the Holy Spirit. 
if God can bring Jesus to earth on that first Christmas, Corinthians is not a big problem. Do you get it? Inspiration and, in air, in, and incarnation are twins in theological importance. So it's not just the Bible, but the whole of the Bible that protects us against isolation, that this part is inspired, but this part isn't. And by the way, that's coming like a, a, a tsunami wave across the church these days. Maybe for Q&A, many want to eliminate a belief in Adam and Eve and think that doesn't affect the dominoes that fall through the rest of the text of Scripture. You can't. You can't ditch Adam and Eve and hold a whole Bible together. That's another topic. That's free. You didn't have to pay for that. Number three, the Bible commands our close attention to prophetic revelation. And, and it's not just a prophecy, but the whole of the scripture, which includes prophetic revelation. In, uh, in First Peter, uh, or Second Peter chapter one, it's a twin passage to the second uh, Timothy passage. And he says, so we have the, the prophetic word made more sure. Now, why does he say more sure? Look back in the context, and let me go there with you. Uh, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 with me. 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This wasn't myth. See, he's very, it's very important to understand. Peter is claiming no myths, okay? That's the word in the Greek, okay? These cleverly devised tales. When he made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about the second advent. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When did they see the majesty of the Lord? Here's the eyewitness. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, I love this Jewish expression, such an utterance, such an utterance as this, was made to him by the majestic glory. See, when God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, listen to him. In the trans at the transfiguration, they were eyewitnesses and they heard the voice of God. Don't miss that. Eyewitnesses of the majesty of Christ, ear witnesses of the majestic glory, saying, this is my beloved son in, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. I take it to be Mount Hermon in northern uh, Israel is the best location geographically from my understanding of the text. It didn't really doesn't matter which mountain on the, on the, on the, as far as the bottom line. They were eyewitnesses and earwitnesses of an experience that, whoa, wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Moses showed up that day. <laughs> Elijah showed up that day. Peter was so impressed. He didn't want to put himself too far forward. He said, let's build three booths, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And that was the Feast of Tabernacles anticipated when God would dwell with man. He thought, this is the kingdom, we're here. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Are you ready for this? 
context. We have the prophetic word made more sure than that. You understand that? Why? Because a personal experience of sight and hearing, as impressive and as wonderful as it was, was misunderstood even by Peter. We have a more sure word of prophecy to which we do well to pay heed, he says, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. It didn't come through human reason. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. No biblical author said, I think I'll write scripture. <laughs> Now, when we say Luke wanted to or Paul wanted to, we're, we're sort of doing a little caveat. We're, 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 we mean by that when we say that, that the Spirit of God guided the human author to do something like that, which I think is a more accurate way to express it. For no prophecy of Scripture was ever made by an act of human will, but men of God, men, excuse me, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. They spoke from God. And because it's God's word through his spirit to human people, we do very well to pay heed. Why? It's better than personal experience. It's more objective than a mountaintop experience of eyesight or ear. Full hearing. Do you realize that what you hold in your hands, the word of God, is a better record for you than had you been on the Mount of Transfiguration with them. See, if God thought that was better, he'd have had everybody on the mountaintop. He only had three of the 12, Peter, James, and John. And Peter didn't quite get it. <laughs> in fact, we know that they didn't quite get it. When they come down off the mountain, they struggle with the next event in the Gospels. So we pay Now, what is this attack? This eliminates mysticism which is an overemphasis on feeling. All of us need this, because we tend to go with the gut. Pardon my vernacular. If it feels good, do it. You know the ad. We have something more sure than personal experience. Whether I think it, whether I feel it, whether I just suppose it, that's much less authoritative than the Word of God. Amen? Boy, do we need to hear this in the church today. Number four, very quickly. Prophecy pulls back the curtain of God's eternal purposes. Prophecy pulls back the curtain of God's eternal purposes. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. I love this passage. One of my favorites in all of scripture. 1 Corinthians 15. I tease my students when I quote this that uh, turn to the last chapter of your Bible and they start flipping to Revelation, and I go, historically. And they look up. What's the last thing? Well, this passage uh, describes it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Begin with me in verse 20. Listen to what he says. But now Christ has been risen from the dead. You know, this is the great resurrection chapter, and he's arguing for the resurrection and arguing against those who would, uh, you know, be skeptical of the resurrection. But he concludes, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. The first one with a glorified body, the first of those who are asleep. 
For since by a man came death, who is that? Adam, hello, that's another whole topic. <laughs> by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die. If he's a mythical character, that doesn't make any sense at all. How could your old nature be connected to a mythical character? Doesn't make any sense at all. How would original sin of a mythical character bring sin into your life? It makes no sense at all, theologically. Paul has to be wrong. The spirit has to be wrong. God has to be wrong. Or maybe there's scientific theory that hasn't caught up yet. But that's another question. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ that is coming, then comes the end. That's why this is the last chapter. <laughs> then comes the end when he hands the kingdom to God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that is abolished is not Satan. It's not sin. It's not your enemy. It's not the atheist. It's not the antagonist. It's death is the final enemy. When he has put all things in subjection under his feet, then he says all things that are put in subjection. It is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. In other words, God's not under him, but he's the one who put everything under Christ. And when all things are subjected to him, watch this, eternal future, then the son also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God might be all in all. There's all kinds of theological nuancing in that passage that's important. But my purpose of this is, we, we know how it's going to end. We, we know where it's going. God has pulled back the curtain of his eternal purpose. What is God doing on earth for heaven's sake anyway? He is working through his son to establish a kingdom of righteousness, the final enemy of which will be death. And then Christ will take that kingdom, hand it back to the father. Then he himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God might be all in all. That's the ultimate purpose of what God is doing on earth for heaven's sake anyway, is demonstrating that he has the right to be understood to be God and worshiped as God. And that's the purpose of his son, to document and demonstrate that as well. What does this do? This guards against fatalism. This guards against fatalism. You know, okay, sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Okay, sirrah, sirrah. No, 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 no. God says there is some future that is yours to see. And you don't have to be fatalistic. Where is it all going to end? It's all going down. We, we sound like we're channeling our grandparents. This world's getting worse and worse and worse. By the way, Ecclesiastes 7 says, the man is not wise who thinks how good it was in the past. That's convicting, so let's get off of that, Okay. Number five, prophecy unveils the character of the power of God. Prophecy unveils the character of the power of God. Notice Revelation 21, where it's all going to go. And God himself is going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more tears, men and women. I just buried my mother a week ago. Just buried my mom. Buried my dad. In uh, 06, buried my older brother in 08. Buried my mother-in-law, buried my father-in-law a couple years prior to that. Half of my immediate family is with the Lord. God's going to wipe away all tears. 
He is uh, going to take away all pain. He's going to take away all death. You see that? There'll be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. And some of us are going, that would be nice. The first things have passed away. He creates all things new. This, this keeps us out of the realm of just, this is all about us. This isn't all about us. It's all about him, as we saw in the, in the previous one. Life without God is what humanism is all about. Man is the measure of all things. Uh-uh. <laughs> if we were the measure of all things, we could have taken care of all pain. We could take care of death. We could take care of all sorrow. We could take care of all mourning. We could take care of all tears. There's nothing I can say to relieve sorrow except point them to hope. We sorrow, but not without hope. We do go through those experiences now. But we won't then. You think that's important to keep perspective? When you've been diagnosed with cancer? Think that's important to uh, keep that in perspective when you are hugging a young couple who's just lost a two-year-old? I don't know how you live without that perspective. It's no wonder cynical people live in that kind of loss of hope. Number six, prophecy directly addresses the future of the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And he's been doing it now for 2,000 years. And we don't look a little like, we don't look like my parents' generation in our churches. None of you are in three-piece suits. That was my grandparents' generation, and the one before that. Why have things changed? You know, we used to have pews, now we have individual seats. And I happen to like that. I like my own space. But you know what, over the centuries, the study of church history is wonderful. It teaches us how bad they could be on the one hand, but how great God is on the other, to keep his church alive as a shrinking globe, and we hear, we heard this week in chapel, just what God's doing a bit around the world. Uh, we had our missions in uh, chapel uh, lectureship this week. And, and just, just to be reminded of where God is working and how God is working and what God is doing and that missions has worked in many ways and, and, and what has happened out there is becoming now reproduced among the national peoples of the countries we've been working in for all these years. You know, and, and might say, whoa, look at God work over there. That's what we wanted. That's why we sent people to them. Maybe they need to send some to us. America's the fourth largest unreached people group in the world. Did you know that? We are, percentage-wise. But Christ is building his church, and what that protects is against traditionalism. Against traditionalism. Somebody defined tradition is the living faith of those who are dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of those who are still living. I love that set of definitions. See, traditionalism is being obsessed with the past. Ecclesiastes would warn us, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. By the way, I just want to let you know, God's not going to lose. He's not going to lose. 
I love that passage in Revelation. Then the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Cha-cha-cha. It's going to be his. And he's going to win. What, what, what great hope. And it's not just us four no more. We want him to win with others that don't yet know the Lord. He's not come back because the job of the church hasn't been finished. We're still to be about our father's business. And he said, this is my son. <laughs> Listen to him. And his promise to build the church came just an event before his majestic glory affirmed that he still was the Messiah, even though they didn't get it yet, to encourage them about the future. Number seven, biblical futurism ensures the joy and the hope of every Christian. Listen to what Paul said, for who is our hope or our joy or our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming? Phenomenal joy to see one come to Christ. That's what Jesus taught. When they said, how, how come you're spending time with sinners and eating with them? He told a three-set parable, it's in the singular, a three-set parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons to explain why am I hanging out with sinners and eating with them? Because all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. The angels rejoice when one sinner repents. A father gets excited when one son repents. Why does Jesus eat with sinners and receive them in a way that he can minister to them? Because he shares the heartbeat of God over the joy of one person who comes to Christ. And Paul says, <laughs> when you are in the presence of God, I'm going to be thrilled. You are our joy. You are our hope. Our, our hope. You are our joy. You are our crown of exaltation. Why does the future matter? <laughs> because of that moment when we get there. Well, what does that uh, deal with? That, that transforms pessimism. P pessimism is that it just doesn't matter. It won't work. Somebody said, I'm not a pessimist, I'm a realist. It won't work. Well, with God, it does work. And it attacks our pessimism. Don't miss it. Paul is so sure of the Lord's return that he's willing, are you ready for this? He's willing to stake the eternal destiny of those he's ministering to on that event. Are you and I that hooked into what God is doing that your friend or mine, your neighbor or mine, just in little ways. My wife typed up a Halloween trap and wrapped it in with a baggie next to the best candy we could think of and we put baggies of big piece of candy in a great little track about eternal life in every single. Can I tell you, Yeah, this is, this is just that practical. We had the biggest crowd at our house we've had in seven years of living in that house. All the other years it's been waning. And you understand, I mean, I wouldn't send my kid out then to get candy like that now. 
especially in a big city where I live, you know, out here in the country, you might, you might drive for miles to go get some candy, but, you know, and, 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 our, and our attendance at the door has been dwindling like this until this year when my wife says, I'm going to pray that God will give us an outreach through Halloween. It's almost oxymoronic, isn't it, just to say an outreach through Halloween. You know what was so fun for me? Is praying with her and standing at the door. I didn't want to miss the joy of dropping that track with that candy in each of those bags. And we had over 70 kids, I think. At our, that's unheard of where I live. I'm on a cul-de-sac with six houses. They shipped them in this year somewhere. They did. They came in from other neighborhoods to my door. And my wife and I just, all right. <laughs> you know, on what other night could I hand out 70 tracks without leaving my door? I'm lazy. It's okay. It worked. <laughs> but do I think it's that important becomes the question. Think it's relevant? Number eight, the future motivates toward a sober and a godly lifestyle. Super, it motivates. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, and he's talking about the end of the world as we know it, it's in that passage where the scoffers scoff, nothing has changed since the beginning, everything remains the same, and it's uh, the whole law of you know, uniformitarianism. And he goes, you know what, when they say that, they are uh, forgetting a few things. Creation, the flood, and the second coming. <laughs> that was his argument. You miss God creating the world out of water. You miss the destroying the world with water. And you miss that God is going to melt the earth with a fervent heat. Cosmogony from God's perspective is not the same like it's always been. And he says, if that's the way it's going to end, what sort of people are you to be, he says, we to be in all holy conduct and godliness. If this is where God's going and this is where the world is going, can I ask us a question? And I ask this of myself, what are we doing playing the world game? Now think about this. Here's the cosmos as we know it. Here's the plan of God as he has designed it. <laughs> and we're looking like this. And unfortunately, too often we're going, I, I want to be here. And he's going, that's a ship going down. It's destined to burn. What are you doing over there? When you could be over here. Now, we're not separated from the world. It's, these two are like this, but it's in the sphere of what God is doing in holy, godly conduct that he wants us to live as citizens, light and salt in a dark and decadent world. If that's where it's all going, well, what, don't, don't, hitch, don't hitch your wagon to that star. That one's going out. That one's not gonna last. It's a metaphor I've used when people go out of their way to get themselves in trouble. Is it's like sitting in a rowboat with a brand new drill going, how does this work? <laughs> like, what are you doing? 
Number nine. What does this do, though, by the way? Let me give you that one. Some of you would be really upset if I didn't give you that. This challenges narcissism. What's narcissism? It's all about me. Narcissism is just rampant in our culture. Me, my, mine, entitlement, unbelievable mentality. I, it, it's owed to me, and I'm waiting for it. Number nine, prophecy reveals the future destruction of the present system. We just mentioned that. Peter goes on to say, but the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Probably could have combined those two, but nine seemed weird, but 10 seemed better. What is this attack? Exposes materialism. Exposes materialism. If it's going to burn when the Lord comes, would I really want to invest the rest of my life in it? You see, what I, what I lose at death isn't really worth living for. Now, he's not saying you can't have a car, you can't have a house. What he's saying is, if that's your obsession, if that's your fulfillment, if that's your meaning, it's going down. I saw a bumper sticker on a Porsche, I used to drive in on I-20, go up 67 and in on 35 to the seminary. And uh, there was a, a guy in the neighborhood somewhere blocks away from me. We had the same work schedule. And for the first 10 years I was teaching at Dallas Seminary, I saw this little red portion on the bumper. It said, the one with the most toys wins. And I was in my little Nissan Sentra, putt-putt. Standard shift, five-speed. It was a good little car. I, I had evil thoughts at times. <laughs> if I came up next to him and just brushed him, he'd be a lot more upset than I would be. But I'll never forget a little card I saw one time that said this. At the end of the game, the king and the pawn go back into the same box. Isn't that great? Some of you are going, what does that mean? It's chess. <laughs> okay? The, the, the life or death guy and the little pawn. But at the end of the game, both of those go back in the same box. You can't take it with you. You can send it on ahead for eternal purposes. But you, you were born empty and you'll die empty. And that's a part of Jesus as well as the book of Ecclesiastes teaching. It exposes materialism, the stuff of my life that gets in the way. Number 10, and I quit. Prophecy warns individuals of the wrath to come. See, it really is a life and death issue. Revelation chapter 20 says this, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. You say, if it's life and death, I thought that was a faith issue. It is. But God is a just God who recompenses us according to what we've done because our works reveal our faith. And he's going to show from both the book of life and the book of works that an unbeliever has nothing with which he can bring to God that matters. If there's faith, 
And John says, the one who is righteous does righteousness in 1 John. If there's faith, it will show, and God will have evidence. But we can't measure it. We can't quantify that. That's God. But the lack of faith will show that the works that have been done All of our righteousness is like filthy rags, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. It is a life and death issue that rules out rationalism. People want to make eternity. If they can't explain it, they don't want to believe it. But it's always been a faith issue. And it's a faith issue in a person that you learn you can trust. And that's Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And that's why prophecy has major implications to the ethics of our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the prophetic portions of the scripture are integral parts of all of your word. And as the psalmist says, all of your words are true. And therefore, it's important for us to understand the future drastically influences the present. You want it to. You've designed it to. And sometimes when those future events are fulfilled, they're designed to be confirming to us to look back and say, He did exactly what he said he would do and proves who he is. Thank you that we've got enough evidence written in the scriptures testified to us that we can know that we have eternal life. As your word says, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Father, may no one in this room leave this room without trusting Christ alone because of your grace that you've given to us alone. May they say, yes, I trust you, Jesus, for my salvation and you alone. Father, thank you by your spirit, you've given us a library of tools, books, examples, life stories, principles, laws, conversations, parables, letters, even fantastic visions of the future, all to change the way we live now in anticipation of them. We thank you, our Father, in Jesus' name.